uh, open up with a, a word of prayer uh, for that God would guide our time together uh, this morning. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. Uh, as we uh, seek to know you from it this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes to the text this morning. Lord, that you would either encourage us or rebuke us, but that in either case, you would point us to Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would learn from Israelites' faith, a lack of faith this morning, and how we might bolster our own faith in Jesus. But we need the Spirit's help to do this. We cannot do it by ourselves. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Meet me in 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you're there, say amen. Need more time? Say hold up. Got to hold up. Somebody. Yeah. 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we've uh, been preaching through uh, the book of Samuel, and here we find ourselves this morning in chapter 8, which is a pivotal point in the book, pivotal point, not only in the book of Samuel, but really in the rest of the life of God's people. This moment will come to define for them their new relationship with the Lord. So meet me there, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, when Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn uh, son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen and to, to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. 
One of the main threads that holds the people of God throughout the scriptures together is this idea that if you're going to be considered a person of God, if you're going to be considered in the family of God, then you must live by faith. Our scripture reading this morning came from the book of Hebrews chapter 12, which calls upon us as followers of Christ to to run the race that is set before us. It says to consider the sufferings of Christ, to to understand that, that we are sons and daughters of God, and because of that, he will treat us as sons and daughters by disciplining us. You see, it's only our culture today that thinks parenthood should involve no discipline. And then the reading ended in chapter 12 with some commands on the person of God, right? The people of faith had some commandments on them. It said this, things like, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. And all of these commandments are to help us to do one thing, which is where chapter 12 began, which is you do all of this, in order to run the race that is set before us. But I wonder, have you ever stopped and considered what is the race before you? Have you ever contemplated, Lord, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? Young people, have you considered the career path that you are going down? Is it what the Lord wants you to do? Mom, Dad, have you considered and pondered the question, am I raising my child in such a way that they will be more able to run the race that the Lord has set before them? Listen, friends, the the race that the Lord has set before us is not undefined. I'm not sure if you know this. The, the, The race that the Lord has set before each of us, it's not vague, it's not unknowable. He has not left us wandering about in the dark. The Lord has not said, run the race, but head off in any direction you'd like to start. You see, he's told us what that race is, and the race that you and I as followers of Jesus are supposed to be running is the same race the Old Testament saints ran, which is that we are to be men and women, boys and girls, who live by faith. In fact, the book of, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 comes right after chapter 11, which starts out by saying that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then the author lists for the next 39 verses, story after story, person after person of people in the Old Testament who lived by faith. The people of God were always meant to be people who lived by faith. The problem is that this is often easier said than done, isn't it? And that's what we see in our text today. Let me give you three headings as we break through uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Three headings, the situation to practice faith, the solution to avoid faith, and then finally the sum of a lack of faith. So the situation, the solution, and the sum. Look with me at verse 1, the situation to practice faith. Face. Verse 1 says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Let me recap for you where we are in the book of Samuel, if you're new with us this morning. In chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that the word of the Lord in those days was rare. It was rare that the Lord would speak to his people. 
And then in, in the end of chapter 3, we, we find that the Lord has begun to reveal himself to Samuel. And then from chapters 4 to chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6, they, they tell the ark narrative proving that the Lord is mighty and sovereign even over his enemies. The Lord is mighty not only on behalf uh, of Israel, but he's uh, mighty on behalf of himself. And, and when, when the people in uh, Israel turn to the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, when they return to the Lord with all their heart, they put away false gods and they directed their heart to the Lord and to serve him only. And the promise was that he would deliver them out of the hand of the Philistines. And that's exactly what we see happen in chapter 7. So much so that the end of chapter 7 ends with Samuel judging all Israel all the days of his life. And you think, we're in a pretty good spot. Where the Lord used to be rare and now we have Samuel judging over us giving us the word of the Lord. At the end of chapter 7, he actually builds an altar to the Lord in his hometown in Ramah. You see, when the people of God were living as people of faith, then the Lord was near to them. And so now we come into chapter 8, and the text doesn't tell us how much time has passed, but it's enough time that, that we find Samuel has grown, old, has grown old and now has two grown sons, who it says that he placed as judges in Israel. Now, when the text says that his sons were placed as judges, commentators debate on what kind of judges these men became. Up until this point in the Old Testament, there were two kinds of judges. The first type of judge came about in Deuteronomy chapter 16, where Moses is told to appoint judges who are meant to be godly men, that judge the people with righteous judgment. They were established as a type of authority over the people to ensure that justice was carried out. Because here's the thing, Moses couldn't be everywhere all at once. Listen, if parenthood has taught me anything, it is that children need constant enforcement of justice. Right? Just constantly. So much so that my wife and I just want to pull our hair. I used to have hair before I had kids. Uh, and so, so Moses is the leader of the people in Deuteronomy, and, and the Lord tells him to, to appoint judges to help you with this task. Sometimes I wish I had people helping me carry out justice with just four children. Imagine millions. This is the first kind of judge. The second type of judge the Old Testament tells us about comes from the book of Judges itself. The cycle in the book of Judges, if you're not familiar, was that Israel would do evil in the sight of the Lord, right? They would become not people of faith and wander far from the Lord's hands. And then when that happened, they became more corrupt until the point that the Lord would give them into the hands of their enemies. After some time in their enemies' hands, they began to cry out to the Lord for help. And when the people of God did this, the Lord would raise up a deliverer, a judge, who would save them out of the hands of their enemies. And Judges chapter 2 tells us that after a period of rest, the people would again begin to fall into their old patterns, no longer listening to the judge that the Lord had raised up, therefore restarting the whole cycle. So these are the two types of judges that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And so when verse 1 says that Samuel made his sons judges over Israel, what type of judge was this supposed to be? I believe the text gives us the, that this type of judge was, uh, was not like the ones God had raised up, but rather this would be similar to uh, the way that uh, Moses appointed judges. You can go back a slide. Uh, I'm not ready for that one yet. We'll get there. Um, the, the, this was akin to the type Moses was appointing to help make sure that justice was being carried out. However, there's two problems with Samuel's appointing his sons as judges over Israel. The first 
is that there's no mention that the office, that this type of judge is hereditary. Meaning that just because they are the son of a judge, Samuel, just because they are Samuel's boys, that therefore they have the right to be appointed as judges. Nowhere in the text, and, and especially in the Deuteronomy where this is stood up, are they appointed to say that it's hereditary. The second problem with it is that we learn what we learn about these boys from the text. Look back at verse 1. When Samuel had become old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. You see, the second problem with Samuel's boys as judges is that they didn't walk in his ways. In fact, the narrator tells us in verse 3 that they perverted justice and took bribes. This was the exact opposite we find a judge should be doing in Deuteronomy 16. Go ahead and put that on the screen there. Deuteronomy 16 says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall show no partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. You see, judges were not supposed to subvert or pervert justice. They were not supposed to take bribes. And what do we find in verse 3? The situation where the people of Israel are able to practice their faith is a situation where ungodly judges are judging them. The exact opposite of what the Torah commanded. And so this is the situation that they have before them. Will they trust God as, uh, as God has said that he would watch over them? What will the response be? Remember back in chapter 2, of First Samuel, Hannah's song to the Lord. Remember, as we preached through that a, a number of weeks ago, that song that uh, I said the song would be a framework for how we could understand the entire book of Samuel. What did Hannah say about the Lord? You can turn there if you want. First Samuel chapter two. What did what did Hannah say about the Lord? What would he do? What would he be like? She said this in chapter two, verse nine. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord will break into pieces his adversaries. He will be the judge of the earth. That's the promise that Hannah has said for us. Israel has a situation to practice active faith in the Lord, in the promise that he will do these things. He said he will do it. Will they believe it? Similarly, this morning, you are given situations in your life to put your faith in God, to enter the promises of him. We're all given different situations every day to put our faith in the Lord. The question is, will we? Will our situation push us deeper in our faith in Him, or will our faith shrivel up? Will we do what Israel does in this passage, which is come up with a solution to avoid faith? The solution to avoid faith, we see this. Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways, and I'll appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." So the solution which the people of Israel come up with to avoid active faith, to avoid practicing faith, 
is they go to Samuel and they say, you know what? You're old. Which, it's got to be great to hear. They tell him, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. They do not, they, they are not like you, Samuel. Samuel was a faithful man. Samuel loved the Lord. His whole life had been dedicated to the Lord. He grew up in the temple. His whole mission was to see people turn from the false gods and give their hearts back to the one true God. He's a picture of what godly leadership looks like. But his succession plan was an utter failure. Because for some reason, the text doesn't tell us, but for some reason, his sons did not have the same high view of God that Samuel had. Many of you today have young children. You might be thinking to yourself, you know what, as long as I bring my kid to church, if we read the Bible to them every night, if we pray with them every day, then I know the Lord will save them and they'll turn out I. They'll turn out I. But our text this morning shows that you might be an absolute stellar parent and faithful follower of Jesus Christ and your child might still, might not walk in your ways. Each of us, including our children, must decide for ourselves if we are going to trust God, if we're going to put our faith in Him. We cannot force that no matter how much we might want to. Many in this room have grown children who do not walk with the Lord. And listen, that doesn't mean you blew it. That doesn't mean you somewhere messed up. We live in a culture which we are constantly trying to lay the blame for all of our lives' decisions back at the next generation. I don't know if you'd realize this. We're constantly, well, you know, I am the way I am because of my mom or my dad or lack of mom or lack of father. Now listen, some of it might be true. Some of it might belong, the blame in our lives might belong at the feet of our parents, but a lot of it is going to be because of choices we made along the way. So parents of grown children, own where you have failed. Repent. Ask your children to forgive you. It's never too late. If you're still here, if the Lord is still working on you, it's never too late to repent and then to go to your children ask them to forgive you where you've fallen as a, as, a, as a parent. And then what do you do? You pray like crazy that the Lord would bring light into darkness and that he would save your children. So we see Israel goes to Samuel and says, you're old, your children don't follow your ways. And then they say, we want a king to judge us like all the nations. Their solution to the situation is that they would get a king, a person they can see, a person they can touch, they can hear speaking to them in the flesh to judge them. They said, we, we want to be like the other nations around them who had a king that they could see, that they could touch, that they could hear. And what's Samuel's response in verse 6? The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Lots of people say, uh, uh, or the question we need to ask ourselves as we read this is, why is Samuel so upset? Why is Samuel so upset? What is it that displeases him? Is it because his sons are, are, are screw-up? Is it because uh, the, the nation of Israel wants to be like the other nations? Lots of commentators, lots of, lots of preachers will say, uh, the reason Samuel's upset is because they wanted to be like the other nations, which... To be honest, as I was studying early on in this week, that's where I was. They, they want to be like the other nations. They don't want to be like the, the people of God God's called them to be. But that's not what our text says. Look at verse 6. It says, they were, he was displeased because they said, give us a king to judge us. It doesn't include, give us a king to judge us like the other nations. 
Right? In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses had already written that, that they were allowed to have a king. This is, uh, this is what the Deuteronomy 17 says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So the children of Israel already had the, the go-ahead, the green light, to go ahead and get, it, to get themselves a king like the other nations. No problem with that. So then why is Samuel so displeased? He's displeased because they want a king to judge them. To judge them. We find out later in the text they, they not only want a king to judge them, but they want a king to go out and fight their battles for them. So, so, so notice what Samuel does. He goes to the Lord and prays, and notice the Lord's response in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For, or because, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So the Lord's response to Samuel is, give them what they want. Give them what they want. Obey their voice. And it says in verse 7, a little bit of insight into uh, what it means when Israel wants a king. You see, uh, if you read this story thinking, well, of course they want a king. They're being judged by uh, some boys who don't know any better. Of course they want a king. They're the right to want a king. But verse 7 tells us how we should think about this passage. When the Lord says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, Samuel, they have rejected me. What that tells us is that in Israel's request for a king, they're saying, we don't want the Lord to be our king. That's what they're saying. And he goes on in verse 8 to say, from the moment I brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, until this day, they have forsaken and rejected me. Time and time again, they have been given situations to practice faith, to practice putting their faith in me, but they have time and again rejected me. And he says at the end of verse 8, Samuel, they're doing the same thing to you. Same thing. Welcome to my world. Obey their voice. Then he tells Samuel to warn them, though. He doesn't say just, uh, uh, just give them what they want, Samuel, and walk away, wash your hands, and be done with it. He says, no, 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 solemnly warn them. Let them know what life will look like under a king who isn't me. Show them what it looks like when you avoid to put your faith in me. Show them what it looks like. Israel wanted a king in the flesh because they did not want God as their king. They wanted this king to judge them, but notice what, the, what God says this king will do. At the end of verse 9, look back at it with me. He doesn't say, give them a king, or tell them about a king who will judge them. What's he say? Let them know the ways of a king who will reign over them. Who will reign over them. Friends, with every situation in life that you are faced with, you have the opportunity to stop, ask yourself, will we stand fast in the faith once delivered to all the saints or not? Will we abandon God in this moment? Every moment of your life, you should be asking yourself, am I actively putting my faith in Jesus Christ? Or am I putting it somewhere else? The situation to practice faith led Israel to the solution to avoid faith. 
And God told them to tell them what the sum of a lack of faith looks like. The sum of a lack of faith. Look at this long warning Samuel gives starting in verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your, your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your vineyards, of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see, the sum of a lack of faith in Israel had three implications. It was threefold. Notice the first result was they got more than what they bargained for. You see, the situation Israel was faced with was Samuel's sons who were perverting justice and taking bribes. In other words, these sons of Samuel were looking out for themselves, and they did it by taking from other people. So the people didn't want this. They wanted a king who would judge over them, not take from them, but give to them. But friends, what word is repeated most often in these verses? Take. Samuel says, you want a king? You want a king who will give to you? That's not what you're going to get. You're going to get a king who constantly takes. Verse 11, he will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take your fields. Verse 15, he will take your income. Verse 16, he will take your resources. Verse 17, he will take your flocks. The Israelites wanted a king who would give. Will this king give? He does. This king does give. Verses 14 and 15, he gives to his friends and to the officers and his armies, but not to the people. This king would be more than they bargained for. The Lord is going to pour out judgment on his people for their lack of faith by giving them more than they bargained for. That isn't the total sum of their lack of faith. Notice the second result would be a return to slavery. Look at verse 17, the end of verse 17. It says, and you shall be his slaves. Don't miss this. Israel wanted a king who would serve them, but what happens is that they would end up being servants to this king. This request for a king is tantamount to a return to the slavery they once knew in Egypt. The third result of a lack of faith would be that they would lose their access to God. When Israel was in Egypt, what happened? They cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard them. It says it heard their groaning and came down to rescue them. In the book of Judges, what happens when uh, the people were submitted into the hands of their enemies? What did the people do? They cried out, Lord, save us. And what happened? God would answer by raising up a judge and delivering his people. Chapter 7 of the previous chapter, what happened? God's people cried out because the Philistines were going to overtake them. And what happened? God answered their prayer. The pattern is, we cry, he answers. But notice in this verse, in, in verse 18, what life under a king who is not Yahweh looks like. Verse 18, in that day, 
you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. The pattern of crying out to God and him answering would no longer be the pattern. The Lord would not listen. Do you see the irony in this passage? Israel is about to forfeit something precious for a king and they do not even seem to notice what they're going to lose. So Israel is given the sum of a lack of faith would be a king who only takes a return to slavery and losing access to God. You'd think if they were given that, they'd be like, on second thought, hold up. But notice the response in verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then, Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Their response is they didn't care. They didn't care. They'd have a king who only takes. They would be returned to slavery. They would lose access to God. And they didn't care. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel, it says. They demanded a king. So let's, let's pause in the, in the flow of the story for a moment. Let's just think on this side of knowing the scripture. How does it go for him? Like, think about it. How does it go? The rest of the Samuel is built around two main characters, Saul, who we'll see rise up in the next chapter until the uh, chapter 15 when the Lord rejects Saul. Introduce David in chapter 16. David will fight for kingship, who the Lord says he will be king up until the end of 1 Samuel, not get the kingship until 2 Samuel. And then you might be thinking, well, thank God. David, a man after God's own heart, this is going to work out for us. Wrong. It doesn't. As a matter of fact, this, this idea of taking uh, shows up again. It's actually in the Hebrew, in, the, in our text, it only, the word take in the Hebrew text only shows up four times. It's four times the word is used in the Hebrew language. It also shows up four times somewhere else in the book of Samuel. Do you know where that might be? After David sends Uriah out to the battlefield and gets killed for, because David had slept with Uriah's wife and, and bore a son, God sends a prophet named Nathan to David to call him out on his sins. And in that passage where Nathan is addressing David, that same Hebrew word take is used four times. You see, David, this king, had taken. He had taken. He had taken. And then the Lord says, David, because you have done this, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. So there's no hope in Saul. There's no hope in David, even though he's a man after God's own heart. Well, well, well who's next in the line of kings? Well, Solomon, David's son. 
And if you read any of the writings of Solomon, if you read the book of uh, 1 and 2 Kings, you'll see that, that Solomon brings great prosperity, great peace, great wealth to the nation of Israel, right? This is the, the three kings who served under the united kingdom, right? Saul, David, uh, and, and Solomon, they served. But, but what you find is that, that Solomon begins to give his heart to other uh, gods. He begins to give his heart to, to a plurality of women and then of the plurality of gods, and then from there, after Solomon, the kingdom becomes divided between northern Israel and southern Israel. And as a matter of fact, the rest of the Old Testament ends with God's people wondering, surely there's got to be a king better than all these jokers. Surely there's got to be a king who outkings all these other kings. All these kings take for selfish gain. That's the point of this text. You put your faith in kings. You put your faith in government. You put your faith in your family. Even you put your faith in yourself. You will be left severely disappointed, friends. So then, where do we put our faith? We can't trust ourselves. We can't trust the judges. We can't trust the kings. Where do we put it, pastor? Friends, where does the New Testament begin? begins like this the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel the new testament begins with a new king Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 said behold your king is coming to you this prophet he says he's prophesying before Jesus ever steps foot on the scene he says behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The New Testament begins with King Jesus. It's the kingdom of God is at hand. Only this time, instead of a king who constantly takes, 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 Jesus is a king who gives. Jesus acts as his father acts. He thinks as his father thinks, and he loves as his father loves. Jesus himself said he comes not to be served, but to serve. In Jesus, we see God the Son as true human and true king. He submits to the Father and comes into the world as a true human. He lives the perfect human life. He acts as a true king should by not taking, but rather instead giving his life on behalf of his people taking their punishment upon himself. Christian friends, I wonder, do you see the gospel in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Notice again the framework of this story with me. Israel demands a king. God says, again and again you have forsaken me, again and again you have rejected me. And then he gives them what they want. And it says, when you call, I'm not going to answer. When you call, I'm not answering. In other words, God is saying, when you end up back in slavery, there you will stay. Because when you have forsaken me and when you have rejected me, then, friends, I will forsake and reject you. Friends, the gospel in this passage is that all of us, all of us, stand with Israel here. 
We all have forsaken and rejected God. Every single one of us stands condemned. And this passage says that the punishment for that, the punishment for putting our faith and hope in anything that's not him, the punishment for that, as we are enslaved to our sins, is that I'm not going to answer you. I'm not going to answer you. And yet, he does. He does. One of the things I wrestle with this week as I studied this passage is like, God says that when they're in Egypt, when they're back in slavery, under a king that they've chosen, he's not going to answer them. But what do we find, friends, in the rest of the story of the Old Testament? He answers them. Is God a liar? He's not. Well, then, did he not mean what he said? Is there some loophole here? Why does God answer them? Why does God answer us? Friends, because Jesus took our punishment. God said, when you call, I will not answer you. In, in other words, I am forsaking you and rejecting you. Friends, Jesus was forsaken and rejected. Jesus took our punishment. The only reason God heard them in the rest of the story of the Old Testament, the only reason God hears us today is because there was one who was forsaken and one who was rejected. That's the only reason God hears our cry and answers us today. You and I are no different than Israel in this passage. We look at God and the promise he has for us, and then we look not to a king. None of us in here are saying, give us a king, unless any of you guys are from England, perhaps. We know enough uh, about presidencies, and we, we know if we can just outlast four, eight years max, we'll get a new president. So most of us aren't putting our hope and trust in the government. Where are we putting our hope and trust then? We've put it in ourselves. We said, I'm going to be the ruler of my life. I'll make my own choices. I'll know which way to go. We look not to a king to, to rule over us, but instead we look to ourselves to rule over us. We, we, we make ourselves kings. We say we belong on the thrones of our lives. We will be king. That's us. And the offer that is extended to you this morning is to put your faith in Christ. Scriptures say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now listen, I can tell you, he's a good king. The Lord is a good king. He's a, he's a good and gracious king. King. He cares for his people. The Bible describes him as being gentle and lowly. He will not uh, crush a bruised reed. He, he, he cares for us. One of the books we read with the children every couple of nights or so, we're working through uh, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, but we're reading like the modified version for children. Uh, same story. Uh, but one of the things that the, the character's uh, little Christian uh, says in Pilgrim's Progress over and over in almost every chapter is, isn't the king good? Isn't he kind? Doesn't he love us? Look how good he's treated us to invite us in to be a member of his kingdom. Listen, he, he is good. He is kind. He is the opposite of what we find in verses 10 through 18. He's a good and gracious king. 
So the question this morning is, have you put your faith in that king? Not in yourself, not in anything else. Listen, even as Christians, you say, yeah, 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 Pastor, I've done that. I've accepted the Lord Jesus. But listen, are you walking in faith? Remember, the people of God uh, through, throughout all the scriptures are people of faith, which means every moment of our lives. We have the opportunity to actively put our faith in him. Not just a one-time thing, but day by day, moment by moment. Active rest in him, faith in him. Listen, if you haven't, I invite you to. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, you promised in this text to forsake Israel in slavery. And you didn't. But you did. Jesus, who took our sins, who took that punishment. All the curses of the law were laid on him. So, Father, I pray we would put our hope and faith and trust in him this morning. Not in ourselves not in our situations, but that we realize that all the situations you have placed us in is a situation to practice faith. I pray we would not avoid it, but we would run to faith. Even in the uncomfortability of faith, trusting in what we can't see, trusting in your promises, because you are faithful, you cannot deny yourself. I pray you help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?